Our Father and our God, we come to this place in which we desire to hear the Word of God, to understand it, to receive it in our hearts and apply it in our lives. And we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in it and through it, making us your genuine disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I usually have a novel going. I don't think it's healthy to read theology all of the time. And my latest is one of the classic novels by G.K. Chesterton, that legendary British literary critic and philosopher and writer. And the novel that I'm reading at the present time is The Man Who Was Thursday. It's about a man named Gabriel Syme, who is a poet, but he's recruited by Scotland Yard to a secret group of detectives to infiltrate an anarchist council which is planning to murder key politicians and create the kind of havoc that one would expect of anarchists. And Syme is successful in getting himself elected to this council as one of its seven members, all of whom have code names corresponding with a day of the week. Syme was Thursday. Now he goes about seeking to either expose or dispose of each of the other members of the council and so subvert their intentions. But as he goes about engaging with the other council members to try to uh, subvert them one by one, he discovers that each one of them are all also detectives who are members of the police. All of them, except the president of the council, uh, the man who was Sunday, and even he, it turns out, was not the anarchist he claimed to be. All of the others were secret. It struck me the other day, what if the church were like that? Well, that all the members of the church were undercover. That all of us were secret Christians, hidden from the world, our identities undetermined and unknown to all but the individuals themselves and to God. What kind of a church would that be? Now, the reason it struck me is that the issue of secret Christians is raised in the midst of our study of the Gospel of John, to which we return this morning after a bit of a hiatus. In particular, the events of the Passion of the Christ actually reveal this issue. It shows up in the account of all places of the burial of Jesus. Our text is John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, 
they laid Jesus there. Before we get into the issue of uh, secret Christians, let's not miss the forest for the trees. This is a remarkable, tender moment in the story of the passion of the Christ. Jesus' suffering has concluded, not just because his death had occurred and, and all that awaits is the disposal of his body, but it was over because Jesus, ever conscious of his mission, has declared his suffering to be concluded. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What would you expect then uh, to be done with the corpses of criminals subject to the most degrading punishment that a cruel Roman Empire could inflict on a human being? Certainly, there would be no ceremonial internment among noteworthy citizens Uh, More likely, a casting of the body into a local dump to be burned with the garbage or left out in the wilderness as food for the birds and the beasts. The best that could be expected would be an unmarked grave with the unnamed paupers. But here comes two notable members of the Jewish ruling upper class, and they do what is sure to raise the eyebrows of the Roman and the Jewish authorities. They ask to take the body of Jesus. Not to dispose of the body as would be customary for a criminal, but, but with the care and respect of one who might be considered a member of one's own family or a nobleman or a beloved leader of a community. They take the body of Jesus down from the cross And one of the men owned a tomb, a family gravesite that had never been used, and they took the body of Jesus there. And the other man collected the artifacts of a proper burial, the myrrh, the aloes, and the spices, the kinds of elements which would delay the decay and putrefaction, which would further humiliate the deceased. That was no easy task, by the way. Seventy-five pounds of it he hauled to the gravesite. Maybe that doesn't sound like much, uh, but what would you compare it to? The closest thing I have is when I replace a 50-pound salt block in my water treatment system that I have at my house. I can do it, but it's not easy. And this man hauls 75 pounds of spices some distance to the garden tomb just outside the city. And then they transfer the body, which certainly weighs much more than 75 pounds, and the hauling of the spices. This is real work. This is real effort. And these are not the efforts of disinterested passers-by. This is the Good Samaritan on steroids. This is beyond what anyone would expect. Why not let the Roman soldiers just get rid of the corpse? That's what usually happens. But no, these two... They care. They care. They have been profoundly affected by the entire sequence of events. They, they knew of this Jesus. They witnessed the trials. They, they followed the trail of the Via Dolorosa. They watched all day at the, the one pilot called the man. They watched him writhe in pain, struggling to breathe. And eventually they watched him expire. And they were moved to pity this man, moved enough to give this Jesus a proper burial in a tomb meant for notable and wealthy people, even though through his life, Jesus could hardly be said to have owned anything. 
certainly not even a grave. Let me ask you, are you moved as these men were about this or by this event? Enough to have interrupted your pre-Sabbath preparations? Are you moved enough to have taken it upon yourself to go to Pilate himself and to ask for his body, to have, have expended the extraordinary effort to care for this one who no longer walked the earth, doesn't even exist from their perspective? It is a, a poignant scene, is it not? tender scene. And yet a cloud hangs over these two men. As honorably as they have acted, as commendably as they cared for the body of Jesus, yet question marks abound regarding their standing among the people of God. Perplexities about their spiritual conditions, doubts about what kind of faith they had, if any. Let me state for the record, faith is a matter of the heart of a human being. And it is the heart that God knows, and it is the heart that you and I do not see. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his. He can see the heart. And then he also says, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So if God knows the heart, then the only thing that we have to go on is whether or not we live lives holy enough to be associated with a holy God. God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks in the, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we humans do what we can to discern the state of the heart by outward appearances, but our perspective is limited and often we focus on irrelevant characteristics and our judgments are frequently wrong about those things. God's judgment is always right, but he is the only one who can look beyond the external, beyond the facades, and rightly distinguish true faith from the false. Both these men acted commendably. They acted honorably, righteously even, in caring for the body of Jesus. But others, quite honestly, have done as much or more out of guilty consciences, which is a far cry from actual saving faith. And both of these men played some small part in the drama which led Jesus to the cross. And it's easy to emphasize or empathize with the guilt that they must have felt when they, when they realized that an innocent man was, was put to death and they had done little, even as members of the council, to prevent it. Though both were in a position they could have done something, perhaps, about it. So who were these men? Joseph of Arimathea was one. We know, for instance, that he was wealthy. And it was his own family tomb, the tomb of a rich man, that they used. He is called in the, in the scriptures a disciple of Jesus. In our text in chapter 19 of, uh, of go the Gospel of John and also in Matthew chapter 27. He is identified as a respected member of the council in Mark 15. Uh, he is said to have been looking for the kingdom of God in Mark 15, and a good and righteous man is identified by Luke 23. And significantly, he had not consented to the council's decision and action regarding Jesus, according to Luke. But the New Testament doesn't record a significant protest on his part regarding the decision to declare Jesus guilty and send him to Pilate for execution. 
So evidently his lack of consent was more like an abstention than it was a vote to the contrary. His consent was, lack of consent was silence. The text says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Evidently he was an undercover disciple of Jesus, never quite out of the closet. He was bothered by all of it, but he was not emboldened by it. That's Joseph. Then there was Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the man identified by John repeatedly, by the way, as the one who came to Jesus by night. The reference to coming by night is not simply a statement of chronology. The implication is clear. Nicodemus didn't want his council comrades to know of his visit. Uh, there was this wonderful confession of Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Uh, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So far, so good. At least Nicodemus is a capable theologian. But there have been capable theologians who have not savingly believed in Jesus over the centuries. Aside from that, no additional mention of Nicodemus is made until his assistance of Joseph in caring for the body of Jesus, and then no additional mention of either Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus in all the rest of the New Testament, or even in extra-biblical Christian literature of the, of the first century. Yet there is this that commends them to us. While they had been closet Christians, clandestine disciples, secret followers, they had finally come out of the closet, so to speak, enough to identify themselves to Pilate and care for the body of Jesus, which would certainly have been a public act, an act which would have been known to the fledgling Christian community, an act that would be followed by similar ministry of the women who visited the tomb on the morning following the Sabbath with their own spices. And they had done so when the other disciples had become clandestine themselves and had fled from public view and were cowering in a room somewhere hoping they would not be rounded up in some kind of grand inquisition by the Romans. The true disciples were nowhere to be found, but these two were moved to present themselves and in no small way made vulnerable their own reputation and positions in doing so. So let me ask you, can you be a secret disciple? There are dangers in being a secret disciple. The New Testament doesn't exactly commend itself to clandestine discipleship. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When juxtaposed against the actual experience of the cross that we read about uh, in this section of John, it becomes all the more powerful, doesn't it? And then Jesus says in Luke 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then even more clearly in Matthew chapter 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Paul echoes these statements of Jesus when he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Those are not very encouraging words for one who is seeking to be a Christian and stay under the world's radar. Why were Joseph and Nicodemus secretive about their so-called discipleship? Well, it's plain from our text, verse 38 of chapter 19 of John. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. For fear of the Jews. Yet John gives another explanation for secret discipleship earlier in the gospel in chapter 12. He says this, nevertheless, many even of the authorities, or John says this, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him for fear of the Pharisees. They did not confess it so that they would not put out, be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So it is not only fear that motivates such secret discipleship, that is, fear that one might be persecuted by the authorities, imprisoned, even killed, that might be part of it, but it was a sense of, of social position that was at stake. They loved the approbation of other people more than the affirmation of God. They were afraid of the ridicule. They were afraid that someone might make fun of them or deride them or mock them. Perhaps you can identify with that kind of engagement with other people in the world. Today, you might be afraid that you might be deplatformed, or that you might be kicked off of Twitter, or that you might not be able to continue on your Facebook page. There's the fear that you might lose friends with some who are well-positioned and influential. And so our tendency is to be restrained in our public persona of our Christianity. It's okay that we have some kind of association with Christianity in our culture and society. It's no big deal that we all attend church, for instance, but let's not be too outward about it. Let's not let anyone know that we think that Jesus is like the only way or something, something radical like that. Let's not let anyone know that we think that uh, one has to believe in Jesus to be saved, and that if one doesn't believe in Jesus, they are condemned already. That's a terrible thought. What narrow-mindedness that betrays, even though that's exactly what Jesus said. It's dangerous to be a secret disciple, dangerous to be a clandestine Christian. There are also losses associated with being a clandestine Christian. Think about what you lose by being secretive about your relationship with Jesus. You, I think, compromise your own relationship with Jesus. Just, just think about Nicodemus and, and Joseph for a moment. Uh, they knew about Jesus right from the get-go. They could have had two or three years of fellowship with Jesus. They could have hung out and listened to two or three years of instruction from Jesus. Their relationship with Jesus reflected, however, no real connection, no real intimacy. They knew about Jesus but they didn't really know Jesus. Their relationship was one of distance and separation. If we approach our Christianity in a similar way, we will discover that when, when push comes to shove and we desperately need Jesus, he doesn't seem to be right there because we haven't invited him in the first place. We've ignored a real relationship with him. What makes us think that we can conjure him up like a genie out of a bottle? 
then we also lose our relationship with God's people. If we don't have a real relationship with Jesus, we don't connect with his people either. The people who love Jesus and the people whom Jesus loves, the people who are called the bride of Christ, the, the people who are the apple of God's eye. We don't hang out with those people, the people who are there to help us grow and encourage us, the people who, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, the people who have walked this road before us and can lead us onward in our walk with the Lord all the way to glory. Those are the things that we cut ourselves off from if we want to be secretive about our discipleship. One of the reasons, I think, for coming to in-person services when we're able is because we want to connect with God's people. We're very thankful for Channel 13 on Shell Point Television. For those who are unable to come, it's a great, great and special blessing. But if, if you're able to be here and identify with Jesus and with his people publicly, you'll understand the difference that that, that makes. There are benefits of being with the flesh and blood body of Christ. Now, I don't know if Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus were truly believers of Jesus Christ. I can't know. I can't read the heart. But that's not, that's not the main question before us. The main question is, what about you? What about you? Are you reluctant to identify with Jesus and with his people? Are you a secret disciple of Jesus? Are you afraid to bear your Christian soul to those with whom you come in contact? Are you a clandestine disciple? If so, what will draw you out into the open? What will draw you out of the closet, so to speak? What drew Joseph and Nicodemus out into the open? It was, it was the cross of Jesus Christ that drew them out into the open. And that's because the love of God was on display in the death of Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isn't that enough to draw you out into the open? Isn't the death of the incarnate Son of God enough to, in spite of the social cost, come out and publicly proclaim your faith in, in Jesus? Are you willing somehow to explain to God who sent his only son to die in your place? Are you willing to explain to God Almighty, the gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, are you wanting to explain to him that you think you ought, that he ought to have done more for you? Otherwise, then you'd be more public about it. That it wasn't enough, you would tell God, to send his son. That it was somehow insufficient to send him to die the death of abject humiliation as a common criminal and to do that in your place. Isn't that enough to draw you out and make you no longer a clandestine disciple, a secret follower of Jesus, but to make a public statement of confession no, we don't want to make that kind of mistake, do we? Because the Scripture says, for the love of Christ compels us. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. And that's a public declaration of who we are in Jesus. Can you be a secret disciple? It's amazing what you find that are nested, these learning lear, things that we learn through these episodes in the passion of the, of the Christ, in the burial of Christ, we discover perhaps what constitutes true saving faith. Are you a secret Christian? Are you out there with who you are in Jesus? Heavenly Father, don't let us be almost Christians. Don't let us be almost Christians. We want to be altogether Christians in whom there is no doubt about who we trust for our salvation and are willing even to sustain the costs of discipleship, even the social costs of discipleship. And so be the people of God in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.